Paul said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's the best definition of grace in the, in the Bible, right there. Today, we want you to hear a message by Steve Gallagher entitled, God's Response to Our Sin. He talks about the power of God's grace. Far too many Christians view grace simply as God's willingness to forgive us after we've sinned. What if God's grace is his available power to keep us from sinning in the first place so that we don't need his grace afterward? Today we answer the question, what role does grace play in freedom from porn? I'm your host, Jim Lewis. This is Purity for Life. today, I want to try to present a balanced picture of what God's grace is, of how God sees sin in the life of a professing Christian, okay? And I invite anybody, when I'm done, if you feel like I'm unbiblical in anything I say, I invite you to come up outside. I'll see you outside, sucker. <laughs> it's still in me a little bit. I humbly invite you. <laughs> to point out my errors. <laughs> if you want to understand God's grace as it's revealed in the New Testament, you've got to understand God's judicial system in the Old Testament because that establishes a foundation for everything that happens in the New Testament, okay? The foundation of everything in the New Testament is what happened, what God taught he didn't just throw it all away. There's a reason we have an Old and a New Testament. You have to go back to the judicial system that God established for the Jewish people. And in the Old Testament times, if you sinned, you had to face the penalty of the law. And so, you know, depending on what you did, you might have to make a sacrifice. You may have to pay a fine. For the things that you and I have done, they would take us out and stone us until we were dead. But we don't think we deserve that. That's our first problem right there. Is we do not think that God's like that, that he thinks that way about sin, and we certainly don't think we deserve it. The new covenant did not mean that we could have a disdain for God's commandments and live in lawlessness. When Jesus died on the cross, it didn't mean that God quit hating sin. 
and then he just threw out his judicial system. That's not what it meant. It meant that he provided an atonement for sin, a way around the judicial system in a sense, but not a way around how he views sin. All God asked, man, when I think about all the Old Testament believers had to go through to live a pleasing life before the Lord, and then Jesus came, lived out a perfect life, a sacrificial life, died a horrible death of torture. All God asks if we sin, two things. Just two things. First, that we confess. We confess, we acknowledge. You can't get anybody to acknowledge doing anything wrong anymore. People are just so full of pride. They can't say, I am wrong. I did wrong. I committed a sin. It's all excuses and justifications and rationalizations. Learn to say, I am wrong. So that's, God's only asking two things if you sin. Confess to him in a real way, acknowledging your, your wrongness and what you did, your sinful tendency, whatever it is. Acknowledge it and acknowledge it to others, other believers. You don't necessarily have to make a, a public announcement, but come to someone who's, you know, at least at your level or someone above you spiritually, whatever. And number two, repent. Repent of that sin. Renounce it. Turn away from it. Turn to the Lord. Get back in fellowship with him. That's all he's asking. Is that so much? Why isn't this being preached? Because people don't want to turn away from what they want. They want what they want. And they don't want to say they're wrong. They don't want to humble themselves. Grace means living the rest of your life in the grateful acknowledgement of the price that Jesus Christ paid on that cross. And if anything... You know, grace doesn't mean a free pass to sin. If anything, it means that you throw yourself into the true Christian life with all your heart. Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. You know, here's the deal, or here's the problem. Is God's grace is never going to be real to you until you have a revelation of what a criminal you have been in God's kingdom. As long as you insist on seeing yourself as a good person, or a good, I'm a good guy, I, I walk with the Lord, I just got this little problem. As long as you insist on seeing yourself in these glowing terms, 
You're not going to get anywhere. That's not what repentance is, is in Scripture. That may be what's taught out there, but that's not what's taught in here. You know who struggles the most with this sort of thing are people who've been raised in the church. Especially those who haven't had any demonstrative, you know, life-dominating sins in their lives. I'm going to read a, a blurb out of a commentary I wrote in our magazine some time back. Um, the title of the commentary is, I think Aunt B ended up in the other place. Let me just read this. Aunt B is only a television character, of course, but what she represents is a dangerously deceptive mindset that 40 years later remains firmly entrenched in our culture. I can remember at least one episode, uh, episode of the Andy Griffith Show where Aunt B was in church, but I cannot think of one instance of her interceding for people or earnestly talking to others about Jesus. In other words, I never saw any indications that she had truly been converted. As far as I can tell, Aunt B was, wasn't really a Christian. She was simply a nice lady living in a Christianized nation who went to a Christian church. Without question, she personifies the erroneous notion that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. This is what our country believes. How strikingly this contrasts with the Apostle Paul's perspective on salvation. In Ephesians 2, he makes abundantly clear the desperate condition of every unconverted person. Dead in their sins, following Satan, living in the lust of their flesh, and having the wrath of God upon them. Nice little old Aunt B. Andy's Aunt B? Yes, truth be told, there is no middle ground. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. This includes the Aunt B's of the world. Well, says a respectable church-going woman in a huff, I've lived an upright life since childhood. I've never been worldly, and I certainly have not followed Satan. In other words, you are alleging that the Bible is not telling the truth. You are saying that you're a good person and see no need for a Savior. Therefore, you will not have one. I was preaching in a big Baptist church in Atlanta few years ago and I read that and when I read that last little thing there a lady she was probably 20 rows back or something I can't remember but I will never forget it as long as I live she gasped and it it was loud because of the truth and the reality of what I just said there you know people have this miss 
conceived notion of what salvation is, what Christianity is, how God sees the human being. We are sinners, all of us. <laughs> Forget about your sexual sin. You were a sinner before that ever even came into your life. You know, I was just listening to um, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, and um, he said in there, so this was some years back he wrote this, so I'm, I'm sure that the numbers are bigger now, but he said, for every American who believes he's probably on his way to hell, 240 believe they're on their way to heaven. That is serious delusion. And that is the mindset that has come into the church. You know, until you have a revelation of the fact that you have been a criminal before the eyes of a holy God, you will never come to love God's grace. All it will ever be is an excuse to sin. Just, it just is a, will just be a corruption into licentiousness. License to sin, license to have your own way, license to do what you want, license to live for the world. That's all grace will ever mean to you until you come to understand in your heart that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, in need of God's grace. All right, so I want to look at three perspectives God has on sin. Number one, God hates sin. He hates every single act of sin. He intensely hates it. That's what the Bible says. Why? What's the big deal? What's the big deal if I look at a girl and think wrongful thoughts? What's the big deal if I care what a guy thinks about me? Or what's the big deal? He hates it because sin ruins lives. Sin enslaves people. Sin destroys families. Sin corrupts society. Sin separates people from him. Sin leads to spiritual death. God hates sin, and those who love God also hate sin. And I got some more bad news for you. The primary purpose for Jesus Christ coming into this world was not to save you from hell. It was to save you from sin. Matthew 1 says that, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And in Titus 2, Paul said that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 1 John 2 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Hell isn't the problem. Sin is the problem. Hell's simply the consequences. Whether it's a living in a hell on earth or living in one eternally, separated from God. You know, a lot of people are like 
the thief. I used to be a bailiff in Los Angeles court, superior courts, and I would watch this kind of stuff. And a lot of people are like the thief who comes before the judge. He's been convicted. There's no, I mean, it was just obvious. There's witnesses. There's forensic evidence, whatever. And he comes before the judge and he pleads for mercy. But it's not because he's penitent. It's not because he's going to change his ways. He's pleading for mercy because he just doesn't want to pay the consequences. And let me ask you guys something. If a, again, I used to be a bailiff. I know what it's like in the, in the whole judicial system. If the local judge here or in your own city, whatever, let's say he just, whatever, he started feeling sorry for these, for criminals, and he just starts cutting people loose. You know, left and right, just, oh, you were convicted. Yeah, but man, you had a rough childhood. You know, I'm going to give this guy mercy and six months probation. The guy just stole a car. You're going to give him six months probation? You know, what if he started doing that kind of stuff? I mean, regularly, on a regular basis. How long do you think the community would put up with that? You're not answering me. Not long. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure you're listening. And yet, why is it that we expect a holy God to just write off sin as if it's nothing? I love this quote. Um, Kathy's been listening to David Pawson, P-A-W-S-O-N, a British guy. Uh, I recommend him. There are some people out there preaching the truth. There are. He's like 90 years old or something. <laughs> but by golly, I mean it, I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was some time back he said this. He said, one of the concepts we hear in the church is that God's love is unconditional. How many of you have heard that? God's love is unconditional. You see what I mean? See this kind of stuff that's out there. But that is not found anywhere in Scripture. If his love was unconditional, there would be no hell. It's true. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Is he right or not? Yeah. William Barclay, who wrote, uh, lived at least 100 years ago. You know, the reason why I'm, I tend to have a sense about what's right and true is because I haven't, over the last 35 years, I've only studied I mean, 95% of what I have studied has been men that were lived 100, 200 years ago. So, like, the church has gone way down this way in that period of time, but I'm still just totally into these guys. And that's why I can see how far off track the church is. Start studying Albert Barnes and... and Matthew Henry and Adam Clark and some of those guys, just make those guys the people you listen to for a few years. It'll get you squared away. William Barclay, he lived back then. Grace is not only a gift, it is a grave responsibility. A man cannot go on living the life he lived before he met Jesus Christ. 
He must be clothed in a new purity and a new holiness and a new goodness. The door is open, but the door is not open to the sinner to come and remain a sinner, but for the sinner to come and become a saint. Man, why isn't that just obvious to everyone? The second thing is that God loves sinners. He loves people. That's the deal. He loves people, and people are sinners. You know, there's just no way around it. <laughs> That's why he loves us. He loves people. In fact, this is what the Pharisees hated about Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. He's a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. You know, they just spit the words out. It's the most horrible thing in their self-righteousness. It's the most horrible thing they could imagine. But Jesus, yes, Jesus hung out with the sinners. But not to accept them as they were, but to reach them and draw them into his kingdom. We used to have a sign, the old chapel over there, <clears throat> before this one was built, 20 years ago, the old chapel over there, we used to have a sign over the door that said, sinners only welcome. And then the Pharisees started complaining about us, so we had to get rid of it. <laughs> I should put it back up. You know, God really does love sinners. He does. He cares deeply. Man, every service you guys are in, in this chapel, he is imploring you. He's pleading with you. He's inviting you. He's begging you practically to leave your sins behind, to leave the self-life behind and come into all that he's got for you. Amen. He loves you. Loves you. Let me give you a couple of examples of his love for sinners. King Ahab one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel. And you know what he did? He's looking for a wife, and um, he didn't pray much about it. And so he went up to Tyre and Sidon and married the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon. Her name was Jezebel, and she was about the foulest woman on earth. I mean, she was a, a devil worshiper, and she, he brought her into the palace, supposedly ruling over the people of God. And she persecuted the church terribly, and so did he. He went along with it. And Elijah confronted him and warned him, if you don't turn it around, God is going to judge you. And... The Lord says to, uh, I mean, Ahab repented, at least temporarily. And listen to what the Lord said to Elijah, because I don't think Elijah liked it very much. But this is what the Lord said to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. Man, so quick to forgive so willing to forgive if someone will repent. A couple hundred years later when, you know, things had really gone downhill, now we're in Judah because Israel's already been taken away. King named Manasseh, 
um, Hezekiah's father, I think it is. And um, he hated Christians, you know, believers, made the streets run with the blood of the believers of his day. In fact, he's the one that tradition says put Isaiah in a log and had men saw that log and just saw through him. Can you imagine? Wow. You know, when you think about the reality of what that was like, and he had the prophet of God. He did that to the prophet of God. We're talking about one of the most wicked men ever. And so God sent in the Assyrians, and the Assyrians conquered Judah and put a hook in his nose and drug him up to Assyria. Wow. And he got up there, and he's in a jail cell or whatever. And then what his fathers, the faith of his fathers, the Lord, he just started crying out and repented to the bone. And it says in 2 Chronicles 33, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Jehovah was God. Such a God, so full of grace. I mean, golly, it's unbelievable that the Lord would so quickly welcome someone back like that. The New Testament, the prodigal son, you know the story, just utter selfishness, wanted to grab all the money, took it and just blew through it, wasted his father's inheritance, but he repented. And on his way back, his father's out there looking every day and he finally sees his son. Keep in mind, he didn't go running after him. It wasn't until his son repented. But when his son repented, he ran out there and embraced him with tears in his eyes and kissing him and hugging him and welcoming him back. You know, the common theme with these stories and so many others is when there's been deep, sincere repentance, the sinner is only going to find an atmosphere of love and grace from the Lord. God will always receive a penitent heart. Always. I gave this message at San Quentin one time. And man, it was just so real to me. You know, and I looked out at that vast crowd, uh, maybe half again as many as in here now. But I mean, these hardened criminals, and who knows the horrible things they had done. But I looked out there and I knew and I said to them, I don't care what you have done. If you will repent sincerely to the Lord, he will wipe the slate clean. Man, such an awesome God. All he's asking for is confession and repentance. But it's got to be sincere. Number three. 
When God thinks of his grace, he's thinking in terms of providing the power to break a person free from the hold of sin. You know, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Amen? And it's abounding all over the place and here. <laughs> but we have just so bought into this anemic version of Christianity where nothing's expected. And we can't imagine living a godly life. But I want to tell you something. The Lord never meant for a child of God to be a loser. He never meant for you to be a loser, men. He wants you to live a victorious life, and His grace will enable you to do it. It will be there to empower you to live the Christian life if you want it. Paul said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's the best definition of grace in the, in the Bible right there, of what it's all about. That's it. Randy Alcorn said, any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. That's a guy who's preaching the truth out there. He's telling the truth. He's someone you can listen to. You know that same atmosphere that provides forgiveness also makes a way through when the temptations come. And the only reason you guys have such a history of defeat, just like me, I had a history of defeat, is you have not yet learned, or you are learning now, of course, but before you came here anyway, you hadn't yet learned how to be connected in union with the Lord. Because when you are connected to the Lord, it's easier to do right than to do wrong. I mean, I'm not saying that there won't be times like what Jordan just shared. You're going to have your failures. I've had my failures. But I have a track record of 35 years of living in freedom of the hold of sin. And I was completely out of control full of myself. The secret is to abide in Christ. That's the secret. So I'm trying to say to you, well, let me just say what Paul said. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God will provide a way of escape. That way of escape, the reason you haven't seen it before is because you weren't walking with the Lord. You weren't walking in the Spirit. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You've got to walk in the Spirit. You can't just go live a carnal life and then start yelling at God for not setting you free. You've got to walk with the Lord. That's what Christianity means, is to walk with the Lord. And you've got to decide if that's what you want or not. If you want the American carnal version, you can have that. 
But there's no reason to hang around here because you're not going to get that here. You can have that. But I'm just telling you, one day, one day, you're going to have to face the reality of your decisions. All right, I'm going to wrap it up. Let me just uh, finish with the comment by Andrew Murray, another man who lived 150 years ago, Calvinist. <clears throat> the grace of Christ to enable us to obey, to keep us from sinning, and to make us holy is so little believed that people think sinning is a part of the Christian life. They think God could not possibly expect perfect obedience from them because he knows they will fail. This error erodes away any determined purpose to do all God has said. It closes the heart to any earnest desire to believe and experience all God's grace can do in us. It keeps men self-contented in the midst of sin. And men, I, you know, all I can tell you is you have many testimonies of staff here now, of hundreds of graduates, men who have gone out of here and are living a victorious life. I was telling Kathy yesterday, man, we, gotta, we need to make a list of all the countries that are, we have missionaries, you know, guys that have been through the program. There's quite a list. I, gotta, I need to come up with that list one of these days. And, but not just missionaries. We got a letter from a couple who, um, they went through the intern program and, and uh, they ended up leaving for a, no, nothing bad on their part. And, man, they're just, to this day, I mean, that was that 15, 20 years ago, right? They were here. And just so grateful to this day that, you know, they're walking with the Lord. They're in a solid church in Pennsylvania. And they love us this ministry, because their lives were changed in this place. And they've lived in victory. Well, he was the one, but, but her too. She had her own issues. And she bravely faced them when she was here and repented and her whole life changed. There's so many testimonies like that. People who sat in these chairs just like you. There's no reason why. Any of you guys need to leave this place and go back to a life of failure. That's right. God has victory for you. His grace is there for you. All right, anybody want to meet me outside? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, your word is absolute, pure truth. I don't care what this culture says. I don't care what a carnal church says or flattering preachers that just are looking to build up big churches. I only care about what your word says, Lord, and your word promises us that if we will repent of our sins, if we will follow you the way that you designate that we follow you, 
if we will live the life that you have laid out in this book, this wonderful, wonderful book, that we can live in freedom from the hold of sin, and we can live above the carnal, worldly lifestyle of everything we see around us. We can live above that in a higher plane. It's there for all of us if we want it. And I thank you, Lord, because it's true. And there have been so many testimonies, not just from Pure Life, but many other places as well. Testimonies of people who took it seriously and responded. And I pray for everyone in here this morning, Lord, that and our visitors, young people even, who haven't been horribly marred by sin yet, God, reach their hearts and make them see their need for a Savior. And all the families represented from these men, God, reach those, the kids, reach the wives, Lord, who don't have some glaring sin that drive them to Calvary. Make them feel their need, Lord, I pray. And all the men here, God, reach through the years of defeat, the years of deception and delusion, the years of falsehoods that they've bought into, reach through it all with truth, Lord, and draw them to yourself. Bring them across that line that Pastor Ed mentioned. Bring them across that line, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God hates all sin but he really loves sinners. So he provided his son as a savior who came to set us free and deliver us from our sins. Far too many Christians view salvation as forgiveness for sins and escape from hell. It is that, but that is not the purpose of salvation. God's purpose in salvation was that after you have repented of your sins and come to Christ in faith, God might indwell you with the Holy Spirit to set you free from the power of sin and deliver you from sinful attitudes and behaviors so that you could live a righteous and holy life right here in this life. He came to deliver you to save you from your sins. What role does grace play in a man gaining freedom from pornography and sexual sin? It should be obvious. God stands ready by his unmerited good favor to empower you to resist temptation, to break free from life-dominating habits, and to live an overcoming life. He wants to set you free, but you must rely on His grace. Moment by moment, day by day, living by faith, living in constant communion and dependence, one temptation, one battle at a time, overcoming sin, gaining victory, getting free. 
freedom from sexual sin is available by His grace and only by His grace. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.